I don't know if you've heard of the old saying, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Oh, you have, you have heard of that saying. Um, do you think that's true? Uh, do you think that's something that's true, that absolute power corrupts absolutely? If we were to ask you to do a show of hands, and we're not going to do that, but would you say yes, absolute power corrupts absolutely? Would you say no? What would you uh, say in chat? Do you think it corrupts absolutely, that absolute power corrupts absolutely? Do you think that's true? I think it feels true at the very least, right? It feels like when people get a lot of power, all of a sudden they don't use their power well. They seem to use their power selfishly and for themselves. Uh, Let me just ask you, can you think of any examples in life today of absolute power corrupting absolutely? Yeah, we live in New York State. Of course we see absolute power corrupting absolutely. In the last two weeks, we just saw that our uh, governor abused his power, not only in, through multiple allegations of sexual harassment, but multiple allegations of accusations of building a bully culture in government, where people who opposed him were targeted And ruined just simply because they opposed him. They didn't even have to be in politics. They could have been in business. And all of a sudden business got harder because of that bully culture. And if you go back through history. I read this this week. That it's been 15 years that a governor in New York State carried out their term. That for the last 15 years. A governor has been removed from office or stepped down from office. That's crazy. We know a lot of examples of what it means to see absolute power corrupt. Absolutely. And maybe you've experienced it personally. Maybe you've been applying for a a promotion at work and someone else got the job who just happened to be related to the person who was doing the promotion. It's not fair. Can you think of any other examples? If I gave you enough time and you were to sit down and maybe get into some groups, you probably could. You could probably think of times when you see the example, when you see that absolute power corrupts absolutely. You see that principle in action. The problem is, it's not a proverb. It's not a principle. It's an anecdote. It is anecdotal in the sense that it's not always the result of having power. We just feel that it's true. And when we mostly feel that that statement's true is when someone else has the power and they're not using it for our benefit. When they're using it for their own benefit or the benefit of someone else to the detriment of ourselves. Well, then all of a sudden... That's an abuse of power. That's not fair. That's not right. They need to govern differently. They need to lead differently. So what does absolute power, what does authority actually do? Well, thankfully, there have been a number of studies done on this statement, on this anecdote that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And one of the most recent ones was there was a study done about eight years ago that was documented in the Journal of of Applied Psychology. There were a group of people that were given three tests. 
the first test was to rate how important ethically related personal attributes were to them. They were given a score based on how they did that test that was described in the study as their moral identity. And their moral identity as defined in the study was the degree to which people thought it was important to their sense of self to be caring, compassionate, fair, generous, and, and, and so on. That's the first part of the study. The second part of the study is that the people were divided into two groups and they were given a writing assignment to do. The first group was told to write a paper about an average day in their lives. What's an average day like? What do you do? What do you experience? Just write about your average day. And the other group was asked to write about when they felt powerful. A time in their life, an experience in their life when they felt powerful. Then the third assignment was this. All of the individuals were put into labs to see how they would respond in certain situations that tested them as to whether they would act in their own self-interest or towards the common good. Now, for the people who wrote a paper on their average day in their lives, there was no statistical difference in their response no matter whether they had a really developed moral identity or one that was not as high quality, let's say. However, people who wrote about a time when they felt that they had power in their lives, there was a dramatic statistical difference. The people, the people who had high moral identity were very aware of what their actions could do in those labs to others. And people who had low moral identity, they didn't care what happened to other people. They tended to act only in their best interest regardless of what would happen to others. And all that test meant, those three steps, what this study demonstrated was that power doesn't corrupt. Power heightens your moral attributes. Or it heightens the lack of your moral attributes. That's what power does. In other words, power doesn't corrupt moral character as much as it reveals it. Power doesn't corrupt character as much as it reveals that. If you're watching with someone at home, whoever you're sitting with here in person, why don't you turn to that person next to them and say, power doesn't corrupt character, power reveals it. Go ahead and say that. In other words, it just shows who you really are. Give a person a little bit of power and it amplifies the high quality of their morality or the lack of their morality. So, the reason why I didn't ask you, you know, raise your hand, and if you were to share an experience, or you were to type in chat, uh, you know, to, to participate in that sort of a survey, was because of this next question. What does power say about you? 
and your moral character. What does having power, what does having influence say about you and your character? Because we all have power in someone's lives. We all have power perhaps at work because of our job. We may have power or influence in our family. We may have power in our marriage. We may have power over our parents depending on how old they are. We may have influence. But my point is we all have influence. We all have power. And the way we use that power only shows our moral character. So what does power say about you? And as a follower of Jesus, what does the power that you have, the influence you have, say about you as a follower of Jesus? Jesus is very interested in giving his people power and authority and influence. We talked about that last week. That we can bring anything to him through prayer. And we have a God who cares and who can make a difference in people's lives. Doing things that are medically impossible. Doing things that are naturally impossible. Doing things that are scientifically impossible. Because he longs to make a difference in the lives of his people. How are we going to use that kind of influence? How are we going to use that kind of prayer? See, Jesus is very interested in how we use our influence, our authority. And he wants to make sure that the way that we use our influence reveals Christ-like character. Not a lack of moral integrity, of moral identity. And so this morning, let's talk about what followers of Jesus ought to do with power and how we can develop that in our lives. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in the 30th verse. We're also going to have the verses on the screen for you and you're welcome uh, to just follow along as we read. Here here we read in uh, Mark 9 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. One of the things that we love to do on a Sunday morning, one of the things I love to teach others about studying their Bible is entering into the moment of a story. Over 75% of the Bible is a narrative story. And when we can enter into that story, maybe 
wrestle through what it would be like to be that person, to be in that experience, to respond the way that they responded. I love that. That's just so helpful in Bible study and preaching and sharing God's word. What do you think that argument would have been like? Because let's think about it. Arguing about who is first, who is the most important, who is the greatest, that's not an easy place to get to, right? Because if we're talking to anyone else, someone gives us a compliment. Oh, you are so great at singing. You are so great at, at uh, playing the piano. You're so great at serving attack kids. Thank you so much for doing all that you do. That's just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're so great at it. You go, oh, shucks. You know, appreciate that, but not really. You know, there's so many people who are better than me. There's a humility that comes up. Imagine you said that to someone, you know, we just love what you're doing. You're really great at what you do. And they go, no, no, I'm actually the greatest. Picture that. Picture what that would have been like for someone to say, no, I'm actually the greatest. I am the best there ever was. I mean, as a sports fan, I love to talk to other sports fans who like to say that this player is better than this player's, and of course we evaluate statistics, and sometimes we compare players across eras. So they played at different times, and they kind of played with different focuses and rules, and so, you know, were they better than this person who played, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Are they still the best? You know, that kind of a thing. And we love to wrestle through those statistics. Could you imagine getting all those players in a room, and they all argued on behalf of themselves, we're the best? What would that be like? What would that be like to get to a place, you think that's good. Did you not see what I did last week? Did you not see me pray for that miracle and there was a miracle? Did you not see me teach those thousands of people and they were eating out of my hand? Did you not see me do all that ministry? Did you not see me? Did you not see me do all these things? I'm clearly the greatest of Jesus' followers. It's almost an impossible situation to experience. But here they are, wrestling through who would be the greatest. At the very least, that was very immature, is the best thing I can think of. At the very worst, it's a lot worse. It must have been something. And they knew that this probably wasn't something that they wanted to get Jesus' opinion on because no one spoke up to say this is what we were arguing about and discussing who was better. And how do you think Jesus felt? Jesus clearly knew. And Jesus has just been explaining to them the most important thing that he would do in his earthly ministry. That the Son of Man would be handed over to the religious rulers, that he would die, and in three days he would be back. He's preparing them for the emotional shock of their lives, that the way to win was through death. And he was starting to teach them And he didn't want this to be a public thing. So he's trying to dodge in between towns, kind of take the back roads to get to where he needs to go. Just imagine 
if your wife comes home from work one day and says, I've got a really big decision to make. The company's offered me this promotion, but it means this extra work and I'm going to be away two weeks out of every month. Conversely, I could take another job, but it would be less pay, but I'd be here all the time. And the husband thoughtfully sits on the couch and says, what's for dinner? Like, talk about a total disconnect. Like, the most sanctified thing I would have done if I was Jesus in that moment was walk out of the room and probably scream into a pillow and say, don't write that down. Don't put that in the Gospels. I would have been so frustrated and furious that here I am pouring out the vision of what is supposed to happen in ministry and people all around who are following are saying, what's for lunch? It would be so frustrating. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that he teaches them. He pulls aside the 12 because he sees a huge disconnect between what he needs to do and the sacrifice that he needs to make and where his closest disciples are in their lives and how they understand what it, do, what it means to do great things for God. And of course, he pulls them aside and he gives them that verse that we know we've studied. If we grow up in church, we maybe have read books that teach this kind of thing, that leaders eat last. That's a, one of the biggest leadership books that you can read these days. That servant leadership is the way to move any organization forward. It's a way to move your home forward. It's a way to move your marriage forward. It's a way to move your church forward. Servant leadership is key. But here's the twist. Jesus says that the greatest among you will be the very last. And they must be servant of all. Wait a minute. Servant of all? Who is all? Who is Jesus referring to when he says all? You serve all. We said off the top that, well, it's a lot easier to spot abuse of power in other people. When they have the power and they're not using it to benefit us, we notice that. But in that moment, Jesus says, every person has the propensity to abuse power. And that means that you could be a Christian for most of your life. And you could easily abuse your power. So easy to spot the lack of moral identity in the lives of other people. But what about when we look in the mirror? Can we spot it in ourselves? Well, Jesus helps us. How can we be servant of all? How can followers of Jesus become servants of all? We're going to look at two of those answers today. There are more, 
but we don't have enough time to cover them all in one morning. So we're going to cover them at a subsequent time, at a later time. But he tells us two ways that followers of Jesus can ensure that they're being a servant to all people. So let's cover two of those answers today. The first one we see in Mark 9, 36 and 37. He took a little child who, whom he placed among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Sounds great. Sounds like, let's welcome children. But what Jesus is doing with this child is demonstrating the least of all people in the eyes of society. Children had little social worth in ancient times. They were the overlooked ones. Not just because they were short in stature and people were taller and they looked over them. But they were the overlooked ones because they had nothing to offer to a home. They had nothing to offer to the head of the household. They had nothing to offer to the lord of the manor. They had nothing to offer of value. And... So much so in Greco-Roman society back then that some servants had more status in the household, in the society, in the town where they lived than the children until they got to a certain age if they survived. They had to be trained and disciplined to serve the head of the household. They didn't have that. You know how kids are. They need to be trained and developed. They need to learn to respect others. They need to learn to share. And if they didn't, Oftentimes there was hell to pay in those homes. And Jesus flips that on its head and says, welcome those that are overlooked in your life. Now, obviously, we don't think of children that way today. But society still overlooks certain people. We Christians like to make that about ourselves, that society's not looking uh, at us and they're trying to move in a different direction. But let's face it, in our, in our culture today, in our part of the world, we've got it pretty good. It's not great, but we've got it pretty good compared to some other Christians. I would not want to be a Christian in Afghanistan today. So it's not us. Who is it? Who are the overlooked people in today's society in our world? Is it the poor? Is it the disabled? Is it those with mental illness? Is it senior citizens? Is it singles? Single people? Is it divorced people? Who are they? We can certainly come up with some categories. But Jesus takes the child and puts that overlooked one in the middle of this group. Which I think is just a profound, powerful, emotional moment. 
Because I think in that moment what Jesus is saying, you overlook people. There are people that you encounter who have more than a category, but a name. Because they're not a group of people, they're an individual. Who do you overlook in your life? Who do I overlook in my life? And what do the overlooked have to offer us? Why are they overlooked in society? Why do we overlook those people? Because they have nothing to give us. They have nothing to share with us. And Jesus says, I want to flip that on its head. I challenge that. Because they do have something to offer you. When you welcome them and they have nothing to offer you do you know what you gain my heavenly father and turn that the other way around when you don't welcome them when you don't welcome the overlooked what do you lose When you welcome the overlooked in your life, you not only gain Jesus and a deeper understanding of what it means to offer someone everything who has nothing to offer you, you gain a deeper awareness and presence and closeness with God that you could never have without welcoming the overlooked. But Jesus is not done. He actually continues. And if you're actually looking in a Bible, this is where our Bible, our English translations fail us because they put in a little header that seems to think, oh, we're heading into a new message. We should stop right here. And we, we could to some degree. But Jesus isn't done. This is just, that's just one way that followers of Jesus are to be a servant to all, that they are to welcome the overlooked into their lives. He continues in verse thirty. Uh, In verse 38, or sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. What is Jesus talking about here? Jesus simply says, Don't put up barriers of qualification that only serve to keep people out. Don't put up barriers. Don't put up qualifications. Don't put up extras that only serve to keep people out and keep you lifted up. Here's a man who is doing ministry. He's casting out demons. We have no idea whether they're successful or not. We have no idea of the relationship that he has with Jesus on this earth. But he's clearly doing ministry. And he's clearly representing Jesus. 
And John says, I told him to stop because he wasn't part of our team. He wasn't under our banner of organization. And Jesus says, don't tell him to stop. If he does something wonderful, great. But let me open up your understanding of what wonderful ministry is. Any ministry that is done for Jesus gets a reward. And you know what qualifies for ministry? Jesus says, anyone who brings you water. People who bring you water. How hard is doing an exorcism successfully? How hard do you think that is? That seems kind of difficult, right? Like if we're to put on the scale of uh, preach a sermon, lead a worship service, plan a worship service, plant a church, casting out demons and performing healings, I'm putting that last category kind of up there in my mind, right? I mean, we just talked about how last week that the disciples couldn't cast out a demon because they were trying everything that Jesus said, but Je- and then Jesus taught them, you know, the only thing that you can do for these kinds is, is to pray. You need to pray these things. And then Jesus turns their understanding of ministry right upside down, of serving him right upside down, and says, you can give a person a cup of water, and they will not lose their reward. They give someone a cup of water in my name, they will not lose their reward. You know, we gravitate to people who have the same level of skill as us. Like attracts like. We gravitate to... Uh, jobs where people are kind of like us. We gravitate to organizations that are kind of like us. We gravitate to churches where people are kind of like us. And what Jesus says is, are we using that as a mechanism to set up a barrier? To say, no, 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 that's not ministry. No, 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 that's not serving. No, 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 you're not part of us. What he's talking about is setting up cliques, groups that are organized around interests and skills and qualifications. What he's talking about is gatekeeping, where there doesn't need to be a fence, let alone a gate. What he's talking about is gatekeeping. And gatekeeping only serves to make us feel important. And it does. It makes us feel important when we're the only ones who can do what we do in a particular organization. That makes us feel valued. That makes us feel special. But sometimes we gatekeep in a way that allows us to be on a pedestal that is made out of someone else. And we stand on them. We push them down in order to stand higher than the rest. Whoever is not against us, whoever is not openly, outwardly saying, I am against you, I am against your gospel, I am against your Jesus, I am against your church, I am against your ministry, and does something to help, is with you, is with Jesus. That's actually really kind of amazing when you think of the fact that when I would go on missions trips with Crosstalk Global and I would teach preaching to cultures all around the world, uh, or in Myanmar specifically, that some people gave so that I could go, gave financially, and they weren't Christians. 
They weren't against what I was teaching and what I was doing. I think there's a bit of a reward for that. I hope there's an open door for that. I hope they experience Jesus through that. That is an amazing reality. Sometimes we set up some barriers, right? Like even in our church. Oh, you got to be a, a, a member to be in this spot here. And you got to be this to do this. You got to be this to do that. And, and so on and so on. I remember one time we had a discussion with our, our young adults group way, way, way back when. And I said, I think one of the best things you could do is pursue how to be a leader in your church. And they said, oh, we're too young. No one would accept us. And I said, that's gatekeeping. Don't you ever believe that because of your youth that you can't lead well in a church. If God's called you to lead, then for God's sake, lead. And I think that's true. It's interesting to me, just as we wrap up today, I think it's interesting to me that Jesus does not chastise them for wanting to be great. Did you notice that? He says, that's stupid pursuit. There's always going to be someone better than you. And that's really encouraging. I want to encourage you to be great. I want to encourage you to be great as a follower of Jesus. I want you to be better than me. I want you to be better than all of the mentors that I've had in my life. I want you to change the world. I want, I want you to be the one through whom Jesus changes the world. That's what I want for you. That's what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to be great. But understand what great is. Great means being a servant to all. And how can followers of Jesus be a servant to all? You make room in your life for the overlooked. And you make room in your life for the unqualified. Make room for the overlooked and the unqualified. Because greatness does not exclude anyone from your life it welcomes them even if you think they have nothing to offer your position should not keep people away because they have nothing to offer you know where that shows up in my life the most is just busyness maybe that's true for you I'm the kind of person that each week I sit down and look at my agenda for the week. I look at how much time I have and I schedule in all of my priorities. And when I get an interruption, whew, that is a test of sanctification. Because I hate being interrupted. It's something that God has to work on me. But I always get phone calls. Pastor, do you have a moment? Do you have a second? Yes, I do. Or, not right now, can we talk later this afternoon? And I've had to discipline myself to do that because if I want to be great in God's kingdom, I can't push away those who are looking for my time who maybe have nothing to offer to the things that I want to do and accomplish. I think today the way I see it the most in culture is when we just ghost people. It's kind of a term that is far used by those younger than me but if you're not aware of what ghosting someone is is that you know you're texting someone or you're calling someone and you say yeah I'll get back to you and then they send you a message and you never respond ever you ignore it you ignore that phone call you ignore that text you don't get back to them when they ask you to get back to them I think that's a way I see 
how people use their priorities to keep people away. They say, I'm too busy, I can't connect. And Jesus says, make room in your schedule to be interrupted. Because when you do, and that person has nothing to offer, you gain God. Your position should not keep people away and your qualifications should not keep people outside. I think the reason we keep people outside is jealousy. We're either afraid of what they can do and we don't want to be seen as less than, or we know what they can do and we don't want them involved because we have a standard of excellence that says this is what we have to do and this is what we have to accomplish. I think we get jealous. That's where it shows up in my life. It's where it shows up in my world where I hear, and I've heard professors at seminaries and colleges say, you know, I don't know why that person got this and I didn't. I don't know why that person got to pastor this church and I didn't. I don't know why this person's a big uh, published author and is touring around the country giving lectures for hundreds of thousands of dollars and I'm not. In my world, it's I don't know why that church is bigger than mine. Maybe in your world it's, I don't know why that family seems to have it more together than mine. I don't know why they can have kids and we can't. I don't know why they have the finances and we don't. I don't know why they can travel and we can't. I don't know why their marriage was successful and mine failed. I don't know why all my friends are married and I'm not. This kind of wounds in life can make us set up barriers that make life all about us. And Jesus very kindly says that's not the path to greatness. The path to greatness is not up, it's down. And it's down to where people who are overlooked are welcomed, including the people that we overlook regularly. And It's a place where people who maybe don't have the qualifications you do because they have way more or they have way less, you welcome them. You give them an opportunity to be a part of something significant. Because you know what you gain when you do. You gain God. They gain a reward. Make room in your life for the overlooked and the unqualified. Welcome them in significant ways into your life. It's great when you get to go to a fancy restaurant. You ever been to a good fancy restaurant? My definition of a fancy restaurant is one where you can't wear jeans. You gotta dress up. Gotta be business casual at least. Suits, sometimes maybe a tie. You know that it's going to be really, really professional. And those kinds of times, uh, the times that I think of when we get to go to a fancy restaurant in our lives is maybe our anniversary or maybe a significant time. Someone may be retiring from work and we want to take them to a spot and, you know, and everybody celebrates, everybody's dressed up and it's going to be a great thing. And so you take all of this time and all of this effort, maybe you impress your spouse by using the valet when you get to the door. And they come and open the door and they park your car. And, oh, it's a special thing. You feel so special. 
They know you're coming because you told them why you're coming and they say, oh, it's your anniversary. It's so great. And you gave them some details and your spouse is like, how did they know? I don't know. I must be special here. And they take you to your table and they start to show you around. I love those moments. But it seems to me that in my experience, there's always someone that shows up that gets in regardless of the dress code. They've got the jeans on. They've come from work. Maybe they've got uh, uh, khaki shorts and sandals and they've got on their best t-shirt rush, you know, from some, you know, a band concert they went to 40 years ago. And they just kind of come in and they join the table somewhere else in, in the room and you're just like, I thought this place had rules. I thought this place was special. I thought I was special. I think that's what's happening in this story today. In those moments, if you want to be great, just push your specialness aside and ask yourself this question. If someone showed up like that at your restaurant, would you let them have a seat? And if you were already there eating at that restaurant, all dressed up, celebrating your special moment, would you let them have a seat at your table? If they were eating alone. To be great. Be a servant of all. Make room in your life for the overlooked. And the unqualified. Let me pray for you. Jesus I want to thank you. And I ask now that your spirit would help us. Because there's not a person in this room. There's not a person who's watching online. There's not a person who's listening to this recording. That... has always welcomed people. There's been times when we've pushed people away because we've been too busy or we've kept people at a distant, like, distance because they're not in our clique, they're not in our spot because of their qualifications. They're too good and we're jealous or because they don't have enough to offer and we don't think they're worth it. But they bring value to our lives, God. They bring the presence of the Heavenly Father to them when they have nothing to offer when they are overlooked and we are Jesus to them, you show up in that moment. And when we, when we welcome the overqualified or the unqualified, we, we get to see them rewarded. We get to see them be rewarded by their heavenly father who they may not even know yet. Lord, would you forgive us for the times when we've overlooked the overlooked and we've unqualified the unqualified? And would you help us to be a people today, starting today, who is truly great because we are a servant of all? Would you help us to be confident in that? Because it's not all about us. It's about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.